The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help support this show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Thanks to everyone who stopped to say hello during my recent trip to Seattle for PIX 2015. It was an amazing time, and it was great to meet some of you in person. If you didn't manage to make it to the event, which was fantastic, you haven't missed out. My presentation, as well as others by some great photographers, including Joe McNally, Brian Smith, Dixie Dixon, Devin Allen, and, and so many others, are available to view for free by visiting pix2015.com. There were some really inspiring presentations, and you don't want to miss any of them. So check it out, pix2015.com. There are a lot of landscape photographers who make a particular part of the country or the world their personal playground. They'll visit the place over and over again and will make images that are both defining of themselves as they do the location. Each state in this country likely has a handful of photographers that have captured and shared images that have helped the rest of us to understand and really appreciate the beauty that's out there. But in the state of Texas, there is only one photographer who's been honored with the title the official state photographer. That photographer is Wyman Minzer. He has called West Texas home for all his life. His love and respect for the earth, the water, the sky, and the Lone Star State has led him to make some of the most beautiful and awe-inspiring images that anyone has ever made of Texas. The only thing better than looking at Wyman Minzer's pictures is having the chance to sit down and talk with him. And as you'll soon hear, it's a voice that I could listen to all night long. But it's his photographs that are his true voice. And it's a beautiful one at that. I kind of wanted to start off in the, in, in the beginning with you, because I was reading about you growing up on a big ranch down in, in Texas, and you were talking mm-hmm. a little bit about, you know, not only just the expanse of the, of the, of, of the land around you, but you, talking talking about the, the storms growing up. And, and I was hoping you'd take us back there when you were a little kid and 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 tell us what that experience was like, you know, in your house you know, watching land, watching those storms. What, what was oh, like yeah. There? You mean in my youth? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, my dad, uh, of course, you know, a lot of the old timers, uh, my dad was born in 1918, my mother in 1926. And and so, uh, you know, they saw a lot of a lot of rough weather back, uh, back when. And so dad was kind of spooked of uh, big storms. And so, you, you know, you'd be awakened in the middle of the night, one or two o'clock in the morning and and, uh, uh, you know, being seven or eight, nine years old, you know, you slept pretty hard back then. I, unfortunately I don't sleep that well today, but, uh, he'd wake us up and say, boys, you know, get up. we got a storm coming, you know? And so we'd get up and, and dad and mom would throw a, a blanket around us. And of course the storm had already hit and man, it would be hailing and raining and blowing, you know, just a lightning, tremendous lightning display and uh, we'd head to the cellar. And, of course, then we'd, once we got in, the, uh, Dad would pull the door down, and he would latch it down with a big chain. And then he would light a couple of Coleman, I mean, uh, kerosene lanterns. Hmm. And uh, and you could see all over the walls there were, you know, uh, uh, granddaddy long-leg spiders and brown recluses and everything living down there. And it had that old moldy smell, but... But up uh, above you, you could hear the storm roaring and blowing, and the the door would be jumping. And then about in an hour, he'd say, "Well, I believe it's going over." And then you'd go back, go back inside, and go to bed. And those were just, I mean, over and over and over again. We we lived those experiences back in the late fifties and the early sixties. Were you always scared of of those events, or after a while did you just become a little desensitized to it? No, you know. Uh, I, I never really had a great fear of storms. It was always sort of fascinating to me. Of course, you know, Dad remembered 
Dad remembered the tornadoes of 48 in 1950-51 that hit here and, and within 10 miles of Benjamin. 1948, one of them hit here actually across the street from where I live right now. And so he remembered the really rough stuff, you know, where uh, you know dozens of people would be killed. Mm-hmm. And so that that really uh, made an impression on him, on his on his you know uh, attitude towards storms and and his old view toward you know rough weather. Of course, I I, I remember him talking about it, you know, f- uh, finding baby blankets down in the in the pasture when we'd be working cattle. He'd he'd say, well, you know, after the big tornado of 1950 or 1949 uh it came right over our house and it would drop sheets of tin right there by the house all twisted up where the tornado went up in the air up in the sky and then went over our house dropping dropping material along the way Hmm. and even today i can take you to a piece of tin right now that dropped uh 64 years ago after that tornado hit it's all twisted up and it's down in the pasture wow wow no wonder he, he had such a visceral reaction to a, to a storm exactly exactly but it i think it had an impression on me later because i i remember um you know whenever i became a early you know young teenager that uh whenever a big storm would be growing in the southwest or the northwest and Late in the evening, I would I would run or drive over to a, a hill called Rattlesnake Hill, which was west of our house, about a mile, and I would just stand up there and watch those storms come in. And it was just I don't know, it was just uh, energizing. You know, I just loved the see the the um, the structure of the clouds, the energy that you felt in the coming of the storm. It was always pretty fascinating to me. Well, you live in a part of the country where uh, you get uh, sort of a unique perspective on that. Yeah, you do. You really do. Of course, up up in the northern panhandle, they get some really wampus, you know, really rough, rough storms up there. Uh, lots of hail. Uh, fortunately, here, um, I hate to I hate to even mention it. I need to knock on wood a little bit, but we haven't had a really, really bad uh, big hailstorm there that was really destructive since about 1985. Well, for people who are not familiar with Texas, particularly the West, the West Plains. Why don't you describe that land? Because like, like for a city boy like me, I got a limited perspective on Texas. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you live, I mean, Texas is a, is a huge state. And as sure. many people joke, uh, jokingly say, it could be its own country. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was at one time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> but but the, the part of your Texas that you have a particular affinity for, you know, for it. Tell us about what what is that land like and why is it and what makes it so special for you? You know, having grown up on a ranch, it. Uh, my dad was a foreman there on this ranch. It was a twenty-seven thousand acre um, outfit, we call them. And uh, you know, you just you have a lot of elbow room, and so you grow up appreciating vast regions with nothing there. Uh, there was a book written called The Great Plains. Uh, goodness gracious, the the author eludes me right now. But anyway, he wrote that uh, the plains is oceanic and um, and a lot of people fear a big open country like that especially the Llano Estacada which lies up west of us they call it the great american desert because uh, even the early day explorers tried to avoid that region because there are no landmarks where people you know you can see what direction you're going in mm-hmm. and so it, actually the the author is Walter uh, Prescott Webb and and he wrote about the the oceanic proportions of the, of the plains. Now we live in the in the rolling plains, which is good big ranch country. And I'm surrounded by uh, big outfits. Uh, you know, 147,000 acre ranch to the west of us, uh, 525,000 acre ranch to the east of us, and so it's um it's uh, of course it's privately owned and uh and and so there's not a lot of visitation on it a lot of not, not a lot of people get to visit there fortunately and and i i really consider consider myself very fortunate to have access to this land and so uh, and it, i just like a big country you just uh, you have brush you have rocks you have rattlesnakes you have coyotes and bobcats and and within 5 minutes of my home you can be in a location where you would think you're 500 miles from anywhere. 
And so it's just the bigness of the land that I appreciate. Um, I like to say, you know, an uh, ocean of sky over a sea of land. And, you know, that's something I, I so appreciate about your work. Because when people think about landscape, they think about these mountains and, you know, all these sort of undulating land masses and water. And you make, you know, the plains look just as amazing and just as all. Uh, awesome mm-hmm. as some of those more majestic landscapes in, in the way that you use light in terms of you use color. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at a scene like like that, what what are you seeing? What are you responding to that that makes you that inspires you to, to make a photograph? Well it I think the inspiration is derived from the same thing that someone um on the ocean, you know, it's it's you feel so insignificant on the ocean. And you do also on on the prairie, on the open prairie. And, of course, with light and especially in the rolling plains, you have the undulating countryside and you have the great shadows. And it gives that detail of the land that a lot of people, in fact, most people who travel Texas, you know, it's in the middle of the day. They don't get up out of their their hotel room until 9 o'clock and they finally hit the road at 10. And so they're not out there on the land and appreciating the light and the texture of the land, uh, like someone you know with a with a a visual you know who has a visual approach, you know it's just the magnitude of the land that fascinates me. And and you and in order to convey that to the readership or to the viewership, you have to have the great light. Well, you didn't start off with the intention of becoming a photographer. You got a bachelor of science degree in wildlife management, uh-huh. and but. How did you become uh, or choose to start using a camera? Well, you know, uh, out on the ranch when I was about 12 years old, I actually went up to my mom. Because, you know, I mean, we we did not. We grew up, you know, I guess you could, by all standards, fairly poor. You know, I mean, we had, you know, we had all the food we could eat and uh, and, you know, good clothes and new shoes and stuff. But, I mean, compared to to... Uh, a lot of standards, you know, we were, we were not well, you know, well-to-do people. And so uh, my mom couldn't afford a good camera for me. She, so she gave me an old Kodak twin lens reflex. And uh, when I was about 12 and I carried it in my, in my saddlebag with me and took photographs of cattle and horses and dogs and, you know, whatever was around there, ducks and whatever I could see. But I became disillusioned with photography because I always wanted to shoot very close. I wanted to shoot strong. Mm -hmm. And so I just put it away and more or less forgot about it. And then uh, whenever I uh, was um, enrolled at Texas Tech and received a research grant to study coyotes, uh, my major professor loaned me an old Argus. Uh, It also was a twin lens, but it was a 35 millimeter and you could focus it. And so uh, then at that point, I realized that, hey, I think, you know, I think I kind of like this stuff. Mm. And so when I gave the camera back, well, then I went right over to 34th Street at Plains Camera and purchased a little Canon TL and um, and sort of started, you know, I never had any any aspirations to be a professional uh, but I took it seriously, you know, and, and as as I mentioned earlier, light always fascinated me. And so I would always strive to go out and take photographs of great light. And then, of course, in the late 70s, uh, years after I graduated from, uh, from Texas Tech, that I started, uh, I, I aspired to actually publish. And then in 1979, of course, uh, I, I first began, you know, having my work published in the magazines. And once, as you well know, once you become published, you know, there's no stopping. You just have to keep going because it's, it's something that kind of overtakes your soul, you know. Well, that that thing about light, I think, is absolutely critical, and it's it's so key to your work. But it's something that it's when you start off as a photographer, it's kind of elusive. It's it's a concept that's kind of hard to understand. It and, is. And what was the moment for you where you had that sort of breakthrough that you came to understand that this mechanical device in your hand had something to do with what you were seeing and the light and combining all those things so that you could make a picture that had the impact that you wanted. 
Well, you know, uh, that's a good question. Um, early on, and I don't know why, but it's just that light fascinated me. And I couldn't understand because, you know, I'd had no background in photography. Uh, no one had been there to teach me, you know, this is, you know, good light, low levels of light, you know, reveals the texture of the land or the the skin. And, and but I, I knew it just because uh, I appreciated, you know, the color that uh, that it gave the old Kodachrome that we used to shoot. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what really made me realize that I was on the right track and started really thinking about light was in 1981, whenever I was uh, speaking with an art director at uh, Texas, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, at the Sports and Field Magazine in New York. And he said, I like your angles, and I like the way, uh, uh, I like your interpretation of light. I like the way you work with light on your subjects. And at that point, I realized that there is something very significant other than my own appreciation you know that it also is something that uh, resonates with other people. So it was. It, so part of you was already doing it in, instinctively. It and, was instinctive. Yeah. It really was. Um, you know, I guess it's one of those deals. It's sort of inherent, and in, in some, in many cases, I know when I taught at Texas Tech for twelve years, I had to really stress the importance of light. Uh, but being a person who had no background, no, and not being taught. To appreciate light, it was just something that I that I grew up appreciating. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about when uh, when I was writing that that article about you way, uh, ways back was about the importance of bad weather when it comes to to, to light. Um, let's let's uh -huh. talk about that. Generally, you know, I, I'm not a storm chaser. You know, you have the people who go up in groups and packs and they chase storms. I don't do that. Um, I prefer to just work alone and and preferably after the passing of the storm, in the death throes of a storm, that's when you get your really, really dramatic light. It's when the storm is is pretty well, you know, uh, peaked in its energy and uh, and it breaks in the late afternoon and and then the sun comes through and and exhibits that that those rays of light that just races over the land and picks up the, the texture and the, the delicate nature of the land, the undulating prairies, and everything has a shadow, you know, every stone, every bush. And so all, all aspects of texture is, is, uh, really resonates in a good photograph whenever, you know, your exposure is correct. So what, what's some of the things that you do in order to take advantage of that? Because so, some of those storms can happen really, really quickly. So they do. And, uh, and that's, I think that, um, is one of those, uh, situations where you become familiar with your, with the region that you're in. Uh, for instance, um, uh, like the other day, just recently when we had the blood moon, mm -hmm. right. uh, I told uh, Celinda, my wife, I said, uh, we need to pick up and travel about 25 miles to the West. I know a good spot that I want to photograph the blood moon coming up. And, um, and I wasn't really that interested in getting the eclipse because I knew everybody in the world would be shooting the eclipse, you know, if it was visible. I just wanted the blood moon uh, for for several reasons, but for the most part, it was because uh, I'm a big historian, and uh, a blood moon a hundred years ago meant the Comanche moon. They call it the moon of the horse stealing in September, whenever the the Comanche Indians would would uh, leave their camps and they would what they would move across the Texas landscape and they would raid and steal horses. And so being in old Comanche country and of course I I didn't have any any um elements to put in the foreground that that indicated anything, you know, of of extreme age, so I picked a, an old uh, windmill. And uh, luckily the moon came up behind a haze and was almost blood red and it was gorgeous. And I put it on my Facebook and got almost 4,000 likes oh and over, a, over 1200 shares. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's just knowing it's knowing where certain elements exist whenever certain weather conditions occur and you just take your pick A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And, uh, and you know how long it's going to take you to get there. And, um, 
and you know what angles you need to be situated in order to you know to get uh, to get the the uh, the energy that you want to convey in the in the picture in the image. Well, one of the things that you you often do is you love going off the beaten path. I mean, most people might you know go go places that is easily accessible, but right, you, you go you go to places that are hard to <laughs> to get to. Uh, uh, why is that so important to make the kinds of pictures that you make? Well, you know, um, that, that's, I'm glad you asked that because I mean, like for instance, state and national parks, you know, they're very necessary that we have to have them because, because 99% of the people, uh, that is their release. That's their opportunity to go and be a part of the land. And, um, Again, I reiterate the fact that I've been very fortunate in being able to have grown up in a big ranch country. And so I have access to a lot of this big, rough country where nobody else gets to go. And I would like for my images to convey to people that, yes, the parks are necessary and they are essential for people to be a part of the land. But two, beyond the boundaries of the park. There is land that still exists that needs to be preserved as well. And so I feel like that's my job is to convey that to the readership or the viewership. But some of the logistical things that you have to contend with is, is how to get there. You know, you've, you've gotten places in helicopter. Right. Know, right? I, mean, <laughs> I mean, you go to some extremes to, to, to get to where you want to go. I mean, it's not like you can just get a forerunner and get to be uh, get to where right. you need to be in a half an hour. I mean, you exactly. you are making treks to make that stuff happen. So <laughs> you, you you demonstrate a lot of commitment. And, 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 the, and the crazy thing about it is that you spend all that energy and all the time to get somewhere and you're not guaranteed that you're going to have all those elements coming together. You're exactly right. So, you know, there's as much effort and as much energy and as much money you're spending to get to where you are, what what are you doing to ensure that when you do get there that you, the odds of you being able to get something are are in your well, favor? Well, you know, you try to you try to pick, you know, I'm a I'm a big weather watcher. I I keep a very close watch on the weather and I don't really plan unless unless it's it's one of those situations where I'm teaching a photo workshop and it's the only opportunity that we have. But if I um, am singly going into a region to shoot imagery. Um, I try to be very specific about the time frame that I'm going to be there, um, checking the weather beforehand and making sure the conditions are going to be optimal. Uh, now, back in the years, back in the 90s, whenever I did a lot of helicopter work, uh, when I was shooting the book a Desert Sanctuaries, Chinatis of the Big Bend, we spent you know weeks back in the in the mountains of the Big Bend in a chopper. Uh, I was a very fortunate. I've, I've got a good college buddy who's uh, who's done very well in life, and he owned a, a Bell Jet Ranger. And so uh, we would just take off and say in say in November, which is an excellent time of the year to go to the desert because it's not too hot. You still get some good uh, cloud structures, and we would go spend three or four days and camp out in the desert in the mountains of West Texas. And you could almost every time be assured that you were going to have some spectacular light. And so it's just, it's understanding the weather in your region or your state. You know, uh, weather in West Texas is going to be a little different than the weather up in the northern part of the state where I live versus the coastal region. Like I'm doing a book project right now down in South Texas on a 150,000 acre ranch that has never been photographed on before. It's never had public access since 1914. I'm the first person on there with a camera. You can pretty well bet that most of the time you're going to have overcast weather. However, uh, that is a region where there's lots of, uh, of underbrush, lots of timber. And in those cases, that's, those, are, those are locations, those are elements where you want overcast weather because you don't want the deep shadows or the highlights, you know, that occur in and light coming through the trees. You want shadows. Uh, you want um, 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 filtered light through the clouds to where you know your your um, um, your extremes in in the uh, the highlights in the in the dark areas are are such that you know all the elements and all the texture can be seen. So I'm okay with that. 
You mentioned that uh, some of the the land that you visit is is privately owned. Yes. So it's not it's not available to or accessed by by the public. So what do you have to do in order to convince people to allow you on their property to go out and you know make some photographs? Is well, you know, uh, it's one of those things where having been raised on a ranch has given me sort of an upper hand, I guess you could say, in some cases. Because I know this may sound uh, rather funny, but uh, it's a, it's almost a language that you speak. Uh, ranchers, big landowners, um, they're a very independent kind of people, and um, and I know how they think. I know, you know, I was raised on a ranch. I was raised as a cowboy, actually, and so I can speak the language, and and you uh, that resonates to them. That uh, that's something that they can talk to you for five minutes and they realize that you're one of them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, they become, they, they become open to your, to your uh, overtures to come on their land. For the most part, most of the places I go and I'm actually commissioned to go there. And like the, like the book projects that I do, uh, they're, they're actually commissioned. And so uh, like for instance, uh, the one big ranch that I, that I uh, published a book on my wife and I published a book on, with uh, the author Henry Chapel was the uh, under one fence, uh, the the Wagner Ranch Legacy. That's five hundred and twenty five thousand acres, and I was commissioned to go on there and and uh, work for a year and a half and and photograph the life on this old ranch as well as the history, and um, and before that, uh, virtually no one had gone on there, and it's because I was it because I was one of them. Mm-hmm. I was one of them. Now, I know people, I know really good photographers in the past, over the last 30 30 years or so, who are super photographers. But if you do not not, uh, convey that, that, you know, personality that is acceptable to these ranchers, they won't let you on. They don't want you. They don't need you. And so uh, it's very important that you that you exude this, you know, this. Uh, hey, I'm one of you. Uh, you know, I'm 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 your guy. I'm I'm one of. Uh, I was raised on a ranch. I was a cowboy, and I understand what you're doing here, and uh, and I'd like to be a part of it. And they they welcome you for the most part. So how do you know where to start? I mean, that, that's that's a lot of land to cover, <laughs> you know. And and you know you you're not you can't afford to be on there for. You know, extended periods of time. So when you right. do get, you get the thumbs up to say, okay, you can come up here and do what you're going to do. Well, you want to make sure that you're making the most out of that time. So how do you organize yourself? How do you plan so well, that you can create photographs where, where literally people have not made photographs before? You don't have any reference images to, to go by. That That's, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think I think it originates or or it's it's from again because I've been there. I've I've lived that life. And what I see that fascinates me on that particular landholding in all likelihood it fascinates them as well. You know, with that theory in mind, I mean I've I guess I've been pretty successful at it because uh because each ranch that I've gone on and, and photographed at length, you know, they, they seem extremely happy with what I come out with. Because, you know, those people generally are involved in just the work process. Mm-hmm. And they know they've got a big country and they've got, know they've got some, some pretty neat places. But whenever you offer it back to them with the light and the land the way that I see it, uh, by using that light and applying that light, they go, wow, you know, that's incredible. We've never really seen it in that manner, and uh, it's incredible that you know that you were able to go there and you know and identify it in in that way mm-hmm. and be able to, co- to communicate it to them. And so, uh, basically, I just go on a place and and like for instance, here's a good here's a good example uh, on one particular ranch that was huge, and I stayed lost so much of the time because uh, you you could go in one gate in the morning. And you could be on the ranch all day driving, and at sunset, you'd finally come off of it. You know, you'd finally leave the premises. And so what I would do is I would go to the cowboys, and I would ask them, what is it about your part of this ranch that fascinates you? 
you've been here, you've lived here, you've seen this land, but is there something here that you feel like is very special? And they were all so very helpful without fail. And then, of course, once they showed me those locations, then I used the light to really bring it out in full force with all of its energy. Mm. One of the things that we Angelinos complain about endlessly is are our commutes. And because uh, we're often just stuck in traffic. And uh -huh. I know that you had uh, a good commute when you were teaching at the community college. Mm -hmm. But you welcomed that, having that time on the road, even though there wasn't a whole lot to see around you. At least that's the way most people would take a look at it. What, tell us about that commute and why you loved it so. Yeah, it was 125 miles. I would, t I would go drive up there once a week and I'd have a, a three-hour class. Whenever I uh, went, when I was actually enrolled at Texas Tech, um, I didn't appreciate that land. You know, it was just uh, once you reach the Cap Rock, which, um, a.k.a. the Llano Estacada, or vice versa, um, the Great American Desert, that's three names for it. Um, it was like, oh, my God, this is just cotton country with a few playa lakes, you know, and I dread going up here, and I've got to, you know, go to school and do my work and, and get, back, get back home on the weekends and work and take a few pictures and hunt and do what I do. But, uh, but in time, I started appreciating the, the history of the land. And so once I reached the Llano Estacado, which unfortunately to a lot of people, when they see that flat country, they become very bored with it. I started seeing the country in a whole different light. I would read the journals of old buffalo hunters from military men, the cavalry. And when I would hit the cap rock and see the cotton fields, I didn't see just the cotton fields. I saw the buffalo, I saw the antelope, the wild mustangs. At each playa, I wondered how many cavalry watered there, how many Comanches camped there. I would see the canyons at the, at the, uh, uh, at the eastern facing of the Caprock country and wondered which canyons that the Comanches used to traverse and, and, and access the Llano Estacado, where they would escape you know, the pursuers, which were the, the, uh, the, the cavalry uh, that uh, they initiated the battle against them in 1871. Everywhere I went, once I began to appreciate the history of the land, I started seeing it in a whole different light. Mm. And it became very fascinating to me. It was like you were in a time machine. I was in a time machine, even today. And I've gone up there a thousand times if, if I've gone up there once. And when I go to, uh, say, for instance, um, Ransom Canyon, you know, we used to go out there on field trips, you know, and the instructor said, we're going to Ransom Canyon. I go, okay, wow, we're going to Ransom Canyon to collect grasses. When I go to Ransom Canyon now, I realize it's called Ransom Canyon because the uh, Comanchero traders met the Comanches there in the 1850s and 60s and early 70s to, uh, to trade uh, their uh, coffee, sugar, uh, gunpowder, whiskey, and they would trade to the uh, to the Native Americans for captive Anglo's. Uh, they would trade for buffalo robes, and so they would trade their captives to the the Comanchero traders from Santa Fe, from Taos, and then of course they would take the Anglo's back to New Mexico, and they would sell them to the military to get back to their families. So they were ransomed, and so all of it became so significant to me because. You know, it's more than just a name. You know, there's a history behind it. Yeah, and, and I could imagine that, you know, when I look at some of your photographs, that the way that you saw the land was the very way that those people were seeing the land themselves 150 years ago. Which Certainly. Years ago. E except for the houses that are perched on the cliffs now. It's the same cliffs that uh, John R. Cook saw in 1875, you know, when they went up and fought the Comanches uh, uh, in March of 1875. Or uh, 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 Renal McKenzie, you know, in the in the eighteen seventy four uh, Indian Wars, uh, the very same cliffs. It's just now there's houses, and back then there were none. But you also photograph wildlife. That's also a big part of what you you do. I mean, you started off with an interest yes, in, in 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 wildlife. Where did that come about? Was that did did that also was that also inspired from your upbringing on on the ranch? Absolutely, I. You know, I was raised as a cowboy, but I often uh, <laughs> was reprimanded by my father because I was always looking 
for animals, you know, seeing how many coyotes or deer I could see, and also for artifacts, you know, archaeological. I had, I had a real interest in, in archaeology and paleontology as a, as a young boy. And so uh, when I first started taking photographs, you know, uh, once, I, once I got a good camera, the old TL, I was really uh, focused more on wildlife than anything. And, uh, and so when I became interested in publishing, the, uh, obviously I started submitting to your, your wildlife-oriented magazine, National Wildlife, Texas Parks and Wildlife, Sports of Field, Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, uh, those, you know, those publications. And then in time, uh, say, you know, I, I would say that I peaked in the mid eighties. Uh, I've probably shot as many covers for sports afield than any, any photographer in America. And, uh, but in the late eighties, I began to realize there was more to it than just wildlife work that I was going from A to B that might be 500 miles between the two points. And I was not taking a camera out to photograph anything. And so I was missing a lot. Mm. And so I started focusing on the sky, on the people, on the land. And so a 500-mile trip, instead of, you know, making two stops along the way to get a Dr. Pepper and use a restroom, I might be making 20 stops to photograph the land and the sky and, and uh, you know, the, the livelihood of people along the way. And so there was a transition there that was very good for me, although it began as a wildlife photographer. You mentioned skies right now, and I know you dedicated a book to, to, to skies. And talk about how skies can have a character all to, them, to themselves. Because when a lot of people think about landscape photographs, the sky can be remarkable, but it seems like it's secondary to the land. But in some of your photographs, it is all about what's happening with the skies. And your photographs reveal that it is as diverse as anything that's, you know, based on land. And uh, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. I see, you know, every time that there is, of course, I would say 90% of the time, you're not going to have a, a spectacular sky in this country. But that 10% that you do is remarkable. And, um, and I realize that when I go out each time, when if I, if I feel strongly enough to pick up a camera and go out and photograph the sky, I approach it like, and there will never be another sky just exactly like it. For the rest of my life, that particular sky will never occur again. The structure in the clouds, the angle of the light, the color of the light, it's one in a million. It's one in, in a lifetime. And so, uh, and so I, you know, even though I do focus a lot on the skies, uh, it's only about probably 10% of the year that you have those spectacular moments where you want to go out you know, and convey the sky to the readership or the viewership. You know, I know you've been asked this uh, a, a lot of times, but I still want to ask you the question is that a lot of people take a look at your photographs and then go, man, you photograph a lot in Texas. Don't you ever want to photograph <laughs> somewhere, somewhere else? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I used to, I used to travel a lot back in the eighties. I, I went to Canada a lot. Of, every year I'd go to Canada once or twice up in Alberta. I've been to Ontario uh, Saskatchewan, uh, shot some stuff up there for American Whitetail magazine, uh, did a big story, um, for sports of field up in the Yukon territory, um, Arizona used to spend a lot of time in Arizona photographing desert bighorn sheep. But, you know, I started really looking at Texas and, and it is a state that has so much diversity in the landscape, in the culture. And so I thought, you know, this is, you know, it's what, 800 plus miles from one corner to the, you know, from Brownsville to Follett, Texas. And so there's a lot of country, a lot of culture and a lot of land, a lot of sky to photograph. And so I just started uh, pulling my, my uh, horns in and started focusing almost exclusively on Texas. And it's been a good thing, of course. I think that's probably one of the reasons that I was uh, – selected or uh, uh, given the the, uh, the title of uh, official photographer of Texas is because I'm almost like an ambassador, mm -hmm. a visual ambassador to the state. Uh, a lot of photographers will, will uh, focus on one aspect. They're either landscape or they're people or they're sports photographers. But I like to think that my work pretty well uh, d defines 
all aspects of Texas. And, uh, and that, that occurred in the late 80s when I decided there was more to offer uh, the people of uh, my readership and viewership than just wildlife photography. I still love it. Man, I tell you, I just, I love to do wildlife photography, but there's just so much more out there to offer people. Yeah. And how did that come about? How did you get that, that, that honor of the official photographer? Well, it's just, it's a title. Uh, I didn't know it was happening. Um, I just received a call one day. Uh, I think it was like on a Friday uh, that if I could be in, in Austin at the state capitol on like a Monday. And I said, well, I guess so, but why? And they said, well, you've been designated the state photographer of Texas. And so it was the 75th <laughs> legislature. And so, I, of course, I'm not, a, I'm not a guy that dresses up. I know the photographs you see of me. I've got my tall boots on and everything. And that's 99% of the time that's what I wear. But they did inform me that I needed a suit. And on this occasion, so I had to go and and try to fit into an old suit I had, and uh, and went to Austin on that uh, a couple of days later, and and uh, I was given that title, and they read the proclamation out on the legislative floor, and thus the title. That I, I, you know, that's really cool because no one else can lay claim to that before or since. It's just you. <laughs> that's yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. It it was a great honor. It was just a tremendous honor. But do you use it to your advantage sometimes? Well, I do. You know, I mean, at, people at first people thought I got paid for it. Why, well, my goodness, no, you don't get paid for it. It's just you know, it was a great honor. But uh, it gives it gives you credibility. It's like a college degree. You know, I, I my degree is in wildlife biology, basically, and uh, with with you know range management kind of as a as a secondary, but. Uh, but I've never really used it. It just gives me cred- credibility in my work and in my writing. And so uh, this, you know, this is kind of a, an honor that, that people go, wow, you know, I'd, I'd like for you to come to do stuff for me. And I appreciate it very much. Oh, that's nice. And I, and I don't take it for granted. I don't, uh, I tell you, you know, Baron X, if you, if you come see me, I think you're going to realize that, you know, that, that Jared and I are just, regular guys. I don't, I don't pretend to be anything other than I am. In fact, sometimes I become very embarrassed whenever people, you know, make a lot of, uh, commentary about my background and everything and, and some of the achievements that I've enjoyed because I, I'm just, I'm just a regular guy. You know, it's like this, like yesterday, I spent all day long with a buddy of mine on his ranch, 55,000 acres. We put our pistols on, we got some sausage and we drove around in his Polaris all day long, eating sausage and shooting rocks. <laughs> and the only camera I had was my iPhone. Oh, you know? that's funny. <laughs> and that's when I'm happy. I'm very happy doing just simple things like that. So, you know, you've done and accomplished a whole lot. And at this point in your career, you can work as, I guess, as hard as you want to. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you know, you, you're out there still plugging away. So, you know, what, what keeps you going? What keeps you going? It's, it's my upbringing. It's, it's, a, it's a, um, um, an appreciation for the work ethic. Uh, I can't stop. Even if I'm playing, I play hard. Hmm. Uh, I, but, but I have to accomplish things. I'm one of these people who, and it may not be some major things. I mean, I'm around people who really accomplish things, you know. I mean, uh you know, I, I could never do some of the, you know, achieve some of the goals that they do. But in my world, I want to accomplish. I want to uh, be able to create imagery that, you know, people are very happy with. It It enriches their life. If I'm out playing, like, for instance, yesterday with my buddy out uh, in, in his on his big ranch, we're driving all day long, nonstop. We're hiking up hills. Uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're not taking it easy. Everything is on the move all the time. And I just like to end the day every day thinking that I've accomplished something. And that's what drives me. That's awesome. How many books have you written now? I mean, I mean, or, or, I've, or I've published, co-authored, uh, collaborated on, uh, I think about 26. Yeah. Wow. Is, is how important have they been to, to what you do? Having, Having oh. the books and having them be a showcase. Oh, you know, the books I think are very important. Back when I did, um, when I worked exclusively for magazines uh, as an editorial shooter, you know, you had, you know, Max, they'd give you maybe 10 pages. 
you know, to to get to get your point across or convey the the feeling, the emotion that you had for the subject. But with a book, you're working with, you know, 110 to 200 pages to completely, I mean, you know, to uh, to convey what you feel is, you know, um, what would it be? What would be a good word here? Um, the message that you want to convey to your audience is complete. You're not, you're not uh, restricted to 10 pages. It's, it's, uh, it's 150, 180 pages. Imagery is yours. Uh, you have some control over the author, over the, the text. Generally, I don't write a book. I've written two. Most of them I've collaborated on. But uh, but you get to read the text, and uh, and of course you you pair up your imagery with the text, and so the whole message is there. It's yours. It's your interpretation. It's it's uh, it's how you feel. It's your emotion. It's all conveyed there uh, between the covers of the book. You know, a, a, a lot of people fake, you know consider themselves landscape photographers, nature photographers, whatever the designation is. And and they can identify different things that they think are, are their strengths in terms of their photographs. So when you take a look at yourself and you take a look at your work, mm-hmm. if if you were asked to to define or try to describe what it is about you you and your work that makes it so unique and so special, how how would you describe that? Well, I'll have to I would have to go back to my upbringing once again, having been raised on a fairly good sized ranch and seeing the scenes that I have, being able to experience those moments of, uh, of, you know, high energy moments of storms, the landscape. I think that I see the country in some respects different than other people. And my use of light probably enhances what I see even more so because I, the, the feedback I get from say, for instance, on Facebook, uh, you know, I know it's a good shot, and then people start co- uh, uh, commenting, and they'll bring out points that, wow, you know, uh, that's true, although I didn't think about it at the time. It was a subconscious thing. It's just something, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a gift, and it all originates from my upbringing and the, uh, the environment that I, that, I, that I grew up in. And seeing the land in the way that I did, appreciating the... Um, the, sol- the solitude of the land that I grew up in and, uh, and then seeing even the wildlife, you know, for instance, uh, going back again to that, to that magazine, um, the editor, actually the art director of sports of field, his name was Gary Gretter because I would view wildlife at a, say I preferred my photography from a very low angle because I felt like if I, if I photographed, an animal at eye level, it was a very intimate, you know, it, it would convey the picture to the viewership as very intimate instead of looking down on it or something, you know, uh, from that angle, from a higher angle, it's like I'm at one with that animal. And that, that art director brought that out. He said, your angles, uh, is something that's so different and it gives strength to your image images. And I think that's from my upbringing. And I'll, I'll say it right now. I don't know if that you hunt or not, but I grew up as a hunter and I photograph uh, the, the animals in the land as I see it from a hunter's perspective. Well, my, my last question, which I ask each guest, is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to uh, discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well... You know, uh, golly, of course, now that now today, I don't I don't really pay that a, a lot of attention to other people's work uh, because I guess it's my age and, <laughs> and being and being a little callous. But I mean, you know, I just but in the early days, in the formative years, I really, really highly respected Elliot Porter oh, for yeah. his use of light. And and I don't know if you've heard of him, but Ernest Haas. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. Ernest Haas, I'll always remember his imagery way back in the 70s, early 70s when I used to see his work, uh, his use of light in the Four Corners region. That was so fascinating to me. And I think that really made an impression on the way that I view the land and, and light today. 
And of course, of course, in 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 the people and the uh, the culture of uh, aspect of my photography, I appreciate um, uh, Margaret Bourquite back oh, in the yeah. Depression years. Uh, I loved her work. Um, the the old photographers that shot during the during those years uh, of the Dust Bowl, fantastic work, wonderful work, still resonates with me today. So where can people go to find out more about you and your work and, and your workshops? Well, uh, you can go to my, to my uh, website, wyomingmentor.com, and, um, and visit. Uh, go, follow me on Facebook if you'd like. I've, I'm kind of maxed out on friends right now. I've got uh, 5,000 friends and uh, 7,000 followers. I like to call everybody contributors. I don't like to use, <laughs> I don't like to use followers. I say you contribute, you know, because it makes – to me, I want everyone to feel like they're a part of of my world, and so uh, so I've got twelve thousand people there, but I'm only allowed five thousand on Facebook. So, but you can be a you can be a a, um, a follower or a contributor. Well, Wyman, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. So, thank it you is, for making time. It is me. my pleasure, Baron X, and I hope you make it to Texas. And if you do, I'd love to host you here. Uh, we'd have a good time together, sir. Oh, absolutely. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find by visiting theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. The Candid Frame is a member of TWIP, a network of photo-related podcasts. You can find more great shows on your favorite topic by visiting thisweekinphoto.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.